This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the New European Podcast. Richard Porritt, your normal host, is on a walking holiday in Snowdonia. My name is Steve Anglesey. Later on, I'll be joined by Jerry Scott to review your reader comments. Uh, first, I'm joined by the editor of the New European, Matt Kelly. Hello, Matt. Hello, Steve. Now, uh, the news of the week. Two enormous bits of research have come out. Uh, let's take them uh, one by one, shall we? Uh, the first one was the extraordinary uh, YouGov poll. Uh, of uh, Remainers and of Leavers. They talked to about 2,000 from each camp, I believe. The headlines from that, 61% of all people who voted uh, to leave believe that significant damage to the British economy would be a price worth paying to get Brexit. 39% of all Leave voters would also be willing for their own family members to lose their jobs in order to get Brexit. And uh, the proportion of Brexit voters who are content for their relatives to be made unemployed, 51%. Now, how do you respond to that? Well, I mean, it defies sort of rational logic, doesn't it? So that does suggest that what we're now dealing with is... I mean, let me say from the beginning, of course, and you have to sort of say this every time very carefully, of course there is a large constituent of people in this country who are in a very considered manner, willing to pay the price of Brexit for all sorts of ideological reasons. And I respect that. What I don't respect is people who have voted uh, through a sentiment or because they have been uh, had the wool pulled over their eyes and are now reluctant or totally unwilling to hold their hands up and say, gosh, we got this wrong. And basically on that very human passion of saving face because they're embarrassed because people don't 
say I got it wrong. What people will do is say, that's what I wanted. That is what I voted for. Don't infer that I'm daft. Hmm. But I'm sorry, there are a lot of daft people out there and there are a lot of intelligent people who made a daft decision. And I think there's all sorts of mitigating facts out there that people can pluck, as we do. You know, we're as guilty of this as anybody, of plucking facts that suit our narrative. And it's very easy. There are so many different facts out there, facts in inverted commas, that can, in isolation, seem to justify whatever you voted. But I think trying to pull back from the subjectivity and the kind of the desire to prove yourself right, if you look at the overall landscape of Brexit, you would have to be irrational to say that this is turning out well. So the <laughs> fact that 60, what was it, 69% of Leavers would... 61%. Un- 61% of people who voted Leave are saying that they would willingly see significant damage to the British economy through Brexit just defies any kind of logic. So it does, to me, suggest that, that it's all now about people being in an entrenched position. So how do we combat that? Well, at the New European, I don't think we're very good at combating an entrenched position. And this is one of the criticisms people make of us, is that we are further antagonising. But I, I've never thought it was our role to be bridge builders and peacemakers. I think yeah, I To stand thought, up for our people, for, right? To yeah. stand up for the argument very vociferously. So we are at a kind of edge on that spectrum. But I don't think, uh, unless people do start sitting down, giving their heads a wobble and thinking about what does this mean for me and for my family and for my community and for the economy and for the next generation, then we're going to walk into this just through sheer stubbornness and that would be a, a calamity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other the, the, the other big headlines from, from, from that YouGov polling were the complete, virtually the, the polar opposite of Remainers said, you know, I think it was 61% of Remainers said that they wouldn't like to see the economy go down the tubes just to be proved right. Um, so, so you know, diametrically opposite there, and of course, the I mean, the, the other really shocking headline for me: the older Leave voters completely relaxed about their family members losing their jobs, the prospects of that losing their jobs because of Brexit. Six uh, among people who voted Leave and were in that poll, uh, and who were over sixty-five years of age, fifty percent said that one of their family members or more losing their jobs because of Brexit would be a price worth paying yeah. to get out of the EU. And that is remarkably... It's either remarkably arrogant, isn't it? Oh, it'll never happen, or it's just remarkably callous. Anyway, the um, the British election study is the other big piece of research of the week. That was a, a, uh, a research done with 30,000 people who voted on uh, June the 8th. And I found this particularly interesting because the, the, uh, the virtually the first the, the the thing that I'd read just before this was uh, a, uh, a spectator column by Rod Little 
uh, saying that there was absolutely no evidence that the mood of the British public had changed because of Brexit. Uh, and also, of course, we, we you know we we regularly have this this argument with people on the left of the Labour Party and, and in Momentum who have told uh, us over Twitter and in person that the issue of Brexit never came up on the doorstep or rarely came up on the doorstep during the campaign, and we're making too much of it. We we should really calm down about Brexit. So this study. Uh, 30,000 voters said that withdrawal from the EU was the crucial issue on polling day, uh, that uh, Labour won won, uh, the votes of Remainers from all different parties, a sizeable amount of them, uh, because it was perceived as being the party that was most likely to stop a hard Brexit from happening. Uh, So how do you react to this? Well, I mean, I think this has been a long-running issue since the election and and Labour played it very cleverly in in having a sort of air of ambiguity and almost if you were if you were brutally cynical you could say that the differences between Keir Starmer and Emily Thornberry and Jeremy Corbyn John McDonnell they they dance around the head of a pin and it's almost deliberately confusing but it's never enough where you would say to a Remainer don't vote Labour, you know. It's like they they feel like there's enough ambiguity there that they, they're going to be the party that might swing ground to getting us out of this mess in a way that the Tories never will. So either through design or by accident, I think Labour have clearly appealed to a lot of Remainers. Um, and the question now, as they are put on the spot a bit more and as their position needs to become clearer because events are moving beyond them because as events unfold in Brussels they need a response so they have to introduce some clarity to their thinking we've got a great piece in I think by Alistair Campbell this week about this process is in danger of sleepwalking into fruition because the voices that are adamantly against Brexit need to now start making themselves heard, mm. both within the Labour Party and elsewhere in the CBI, who hate Brexit, yeah. but have been tiptoeing around it and saying, well, you know, we can't say this, we can't say that, but overall, blah, blah, blah. They hate Brexit. Well, now's the time they need to say it to start spelling out why. The trade unions, who largely hate Brexit, need to start spelling that out. Len McCluskey will start becoming uh, a very interesting player in this because of course he is incredibly influential at the in the labor movement and represents a massive movement of people who are going to be affected by brexit now where does len mccluskey side on this issue will he influence jeremy corbyn whose natural disposition natural disposition is to be against the european union for all sorts of reasons that have got nothing to do with the economy more grounded in this sense of uh, uh, kind of dominant imperialistic and and military uh, entity mm. uh, that that he he hates fine okay rational argument but be honest about it so that people can make the call and you know at the next election will labor be standing on a brexit of some sort ticket at the go- at the going rate they'd have to will they be standing on a uh, a ticket that uh, isn't as clear as we all thought it was on abolishing tuition fees so the, the the sectors, the two big lumps of, of demography who came towards Labour, the Remain vote and the Young vote, next time, 
the opposition have got stuff to throw at Labour to say, well, that's that's not your case. So yeah. so you can see that that upsurge eroding in Labour's case. I want to see a strong Labour Party. I think it's essential to democracy, and I ju- and I don't care, t- frankly, whether it's a Jeremy Corbyn-style Labour Party or a more centrist Labour Party, because whatever it is, as long as it states its position with clarity, people can then understand where the void in politics is, if there is one, and that void will get filled by other people. You know, the Liberal Democrats could still end up doing quite well on this if Vince Cable keeps true to his position that, you know, the only good Brexit is no Brexit. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of people who feel the same way. Yeah. They performed very badly in the general election because there was this obfuscation from Labour. So people, again, wishful thinking, Labour will get us out of this mess. We did a thing. Do you remember? Super Jez. Will he save us from Brexit? Yeah, yeah. I think that was an ill-conceived cover, frankly. <laughs> I think we, we fell for us a little bit. Yes. Uh, which shows you. But he may, I guess, you know, I guess he may be forced to fly... If the Labour conference, I'm actually really looking forward to the Labour conference to yeah, see what happens. Yeah, yeah. He may be forced to fly if enough, if you know, if the party members push him off the yeah. top of the, the skyscraper and say, yeah. "We actually don't believe in what you're saying. We yeah. think that this is really important. It is the biggest issue, yeah. uh, which this poll uh, validates. The survey validates the BES survey, and you are going to have to, you know, you're going to have to come down in one way do, or the do other. You, do you think that that he is that kind of guy. I mean, I know that sounds such a facile observation, but is he the kind of guy that would would swallow all of those principles and just say, okay, you know, I'm going to go with the flow on this? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, look, you, you know, when you see look when you see him talking about the 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 nuclear thing, which obviously Unison have yeah. played a part in keeping that as part of Labour Party. Policy, um, you know, he, he he pulls a sour face, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty much swept under the carpet. This really is a defining issue of our times, though, isn't yeah. it? And I think he, he he would need to be clearer on it. I mean, look, just for the sake of the the listeners, the we get obviously privileged kind of insight from people at the top end of this conversation. You know, so we speak to people at the top of the Labour Party, and they contact us and they give us a clue as to the thinking and although no one's ever stated it that there is a that you know like the narrative arc of labor strategy ends up with no brexit there have been sort of nudges and winks from some people who are very influential in in forming labor's brexit strategy that actually there is a kind of escape route Hmm. it's never been stated explicitly but and maybe they're just talking to us and giving us what we want to hear but i wouldn't rule out that there is a kind of master plan, maybe not sitting in Jeremy Corbyn's head, but somewhere else in the key opinion-forming uh, elements of Labour, where we lead the conversation to a point where no Brexit becomes possible. Yes, I think that is very true. I mean, Diane Abbott this week yeah. hinting at remaining in the single market, or maybe remaining yeah. in the customs union. Yeah. I think it is a it's a very, very real uh, possibility. I, and I also think that, as we all know, the, the current strategy is to just sit back and watch the Conservatives implode over this. And but, what is yeah. the point but this is right where I, now? This is where I get incredibly anxious. If, we had, if this was playing out over five years, then that would be fine. But mm. it's not. It's playing out over the next 18 months. Yeah, and... Yeah. and there comes a at what point do people start coalescing and saying, "No, nah, you know, there's a big group of people here who think this is just nuts, you know, and we've got to put a stop to it." 
because there is a big group of people in Parliament who think it's nuts. Yeah. Alistair uh, says, reckons it might be 80% of MPs who think that this is just a catastrophe and it's the wrong thing to do. Um, so, but you, publicly, you would think it was the reverse. You would think it was a handful of people. So at what point does the majority representation that is against Brexit start to make its presence felt in the House of Commons? Yeah. Um, Okay, well, I mean, this one will will run and run. Personally, I I feel personally vindicated by this this BES survey. I said last week, you know, my full intention at the start of the general election campaign was to vote for the Lib Dems. I decided to vote Labour in the last week of the campaign and did so because I thought that they were the party that was most likely to be able to stop a hard Brexit, and it, it seems that a lot of other people did that too. Um, later on with uh, with Jerry Scott, I'm going to touch on some of the sort of cabinet infighting, or was it really infighting um, uh, uh, over the last few days since Theresa May has been away uh, about the transitional uh, phase, which will um, come in at the end of 2019. Obviously, Philip Hammond seemed to indicate that that could go on for three years, and there would be freedom of movement in that time. David Davis, uh, Liam Fox, Boris Johnson have made it clear that they don't quite agree with that and there was a number, a fairly wishy-washy number 10 statement uh, which appeared to slap Philip Hammond down but without really doing so. Um, the, the interesting thing out of this that I wanted to talk to you about was, was that later on uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg popped up uh, he was quoting Lord Melbourne. He quoted Lord Melbourne as he would do, wouldn't he? It's from 1841, quite a modern reference for, for Jacob <laughs> Rees-Mogg. It's one of his more recent things. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, he he quoted him saying, um, calling for unity. Uh, uh, is it lower the price of corn or isn't it? It is not much matter which we say, but mind we must say all the same. So yeah. this idea of where we must all <laughs> hold hands and jump off the cliff together. Yeah. Do you think Jacob Rees-Mogg is serious about... Do you think he's an ambitious person? Do you think he thinks that he might become Prime Minister in the sort of deranged way that other people, um, uh, you know, yeah. might have done? Well, I mean, if he if he didn't want to, then... I don't know why he'd be positioning himself and posturing like he is and and appearing God, endlessly on, on every kind of medium. I think we're probably the only media platform he hasn't badgered to, to get onto lately. And I, I listened to that odd, odd quote, and I'm not as clever as Jacob B. Smog, so I was struggling to understand what the point of, of the... the uh, of the quote was, as I think Nick Robinson was on on the Today programme. Gosh, is he a serious candidate? I don't know really if he he's an he's an amusing candidate. Uh, I I've got a natural predispos- predisposition against people who uh, are born with uh, a sort of unfair advantage like this, and he certainly certainly is, falls into that category. But that's not to to say that. He's he's undeserving of opportunity. I just think he, if he thinks that standing on on uh, the Westminster Common and being funny equates to being able to run a country, uh, I think they're two very different things. Yeah. I think uh, the same applies to Boris Johnson. Sure. And I think um, what it does smell of is that kind of aristocratic presumption of patronage you know that that 
there is there is a class in this country that are just better educated, better suited, better better positioned to lead Britain to a glorious future, you know, and you can trace all this heritage back hundreds of years and, and you can pluck out quotes from Lord Melbourne to prove your case. That that doesn't carry much impact on, on the bus stops and chip shops of Bootle and Salford, you know. I don't think there's much cut through there. And what you need is a guy who can cut through to that. And actually, the guy who most successfully cut through to that audience uh, in recent times was was Tony Blair. Mm. So so there's your salutary lesson about um, what happens when you are a guy who can connect with lots of people and then you become rich and established. People absolutely hate you. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So it wouldn't... Uh, Jacob's already, you know, much further down the running, running track on that score than Tony Blair was. So I, I wouldn't take him that seriously. No. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it is quite hard to take Jacob Rees-Mogg... Uh, Serious. I don't know if you remember this, but we, Matt and I, and uh, and our friend uh, James Brown, the, the, the former editor of the, the Great Loaded magazine, went to. Uh, we went to watch the Test match a couple of years ago, two or three years ago. England were playing Australia. It was it was this kind of time of year. It was a baking hot. Day at Lords, uh, we were in our you know uh, not not quite the shorts and flip flops, but in fairly relaxed clothing. And as we queued up to go in, Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, swept past us, Did looking he? like a an undertaker in in nineteen uh, fourteen. I was there, and I forgot. It was it was an absolutely remark. He could not have been wearing more, he was wearing more black than the average uh, you see at the average goth night. An extraordinary thing. Uh, so. Uh, that's Jacob Rees-Mogg. I, you know, l- listen to what he is saying. He, he is basically, he's, he's, he is being Jacob Rees-Mogg, but he is attempting to close down all discussion, yeah. never mind all dissent, all discussion yeah. about this, and that's why he's not to be trusted. And one thing I would say about, just as a sort of final caveat, because, you know, apparently I'm part of the liberal establishment, according to somebody on Twitter the other night, although um, <laughs> I would argue that I'm not... He is at least true to himself, um, and you sort of. I think that does carry a long way with people. You know, that there's an element of beyond all the amusement and the sort of silly, sort of supercilious nature of, of the man. People sort of know that he's a real character, mm. and that that is worth a lot these days in a political arena where where shallow pretension to conviction is the default yes now especially now in a house of commons that is absolutely filled full of liars and of people who are not being true to what they really believe and that's a fact because we know that most of them are remain supporters and yet they're all going along with this so they're either in defiance of the representative democracy that they were elected to at the last election or they're in defiance of of the referendum um that you know the it's an invidious position being an MP these days, but you've got to say about people like Rhys Mogg, at least they're being genuine, yeah. you know, whether you like it or not. Which I think, which I think he is. Uh, and, you know, we've talked before on, on this podcast about the rise of the non-politician politician. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah. know quite where Macron fits in. He seems to be quite a politician to me. Clearly, yeah. Donald Trump is not a politician. Boris Johnson, who yeah. has cooked his own goose, is not a politician. And Jeremy Corbyn is a politician, a career politician, but doesn't appear to be a politician. Uh, And there is something kind of irresistible about this. Now, before I let you go uh, and we move on to Brexiteer of the Week, um, a parliament full of liars, as you've just said. Lord Sugar, this week, 
uh, the Mrs. Tiggy Winkle lookalike uh, and, and boss of Amstrad and Apprentice uh, star, he said that lying politicians should be jailed. Now, he, he, in his typically clumsy way, Lord Sugar brought up the issue of Jeremy Corbyn talking about tuition fees and really Jeremy Corbyn did not he say, say I am going to end historic no. you know yeah. I, I'm no particular fan of Jeremy Corbyn mm. he did not say if I am elected I will end the uh, I will give you back your tuition fees or no. I will stop you paying them back so he was wrong there but he yeah. did talk about the the referendum he said as the chairman of a public company if I told lies in a shareholder statement and it made the crash the, the share price crash all go up I would be put in prison. Uh, if politicians lie, which results in massive decisions like leaving the European Union or getting votes in a general election, it should be a criminal offence, as it would be if I lied to my shareholders in a public company. It's, I mean, it's an interesting moral... I mean, <laughs> I mean, let's all right. Let's look at it the other way. Let's let's say should it should should it be okay for politicians to lie without consequence? Uh, to knowingly lie without consequence and to have a negative impact on the communities that they are elected to serve, should that be something that is possible to escape consequence? And that that seems crazy, you know. It Mm. seems like, you know, these are... You know, if you get caught nicking from the till of your employer, it's a much worse offence than if you just get caught nicking from someone's till, you know. Yeah. Because there's a breach of trust. Yes. Involved, and that's recognised in the penal system. You know, you go to jail for a long time if you're caught stealing from your employer, not just for the theft, but because of the breach of trust. And I think what Alan Sugar's talking about is that breach of trust, that conscious breach of trust for self-advancement, and at the uh, with a willingness to jeopardise the interests of the community that have put their trust in you. Mm. So that seems to me like. You know, it should be an offence somewhere along the line to knowingly do that. Uh, and it's, it, of course, you know, if it was an offence, take the bus, take the bus. Who could you, could anybody stand up and prosecute Boris Johnson for knowingly, knowingly saying the 350 million question? Because he didn't, because he's just an idiot in that regard. You know, he got it wrong. Mm. That's not what it said on the side of the bus, but it's what Boris Johnson printed on his poster. Yes. Because he was, he couldn't read the bloody bus properly. <laughs> so how can you convict somebody for being so dim-witted and, and attention-seeking? So maybe there's a sort of murder versus manslaughter thing. There's right. a kind of inadvertent thick wittery yeah, yeah, that yeah. should eat. But equally, you know, the, the, the problem is, I guess, is that there doesn't seem to be any consequence, whether yeah. it's criminal or otherwise. It just seems like we're now entered an age where you can say what the hell you like. If you've got a platform to say it on, Go ahead and say it, and never mind the evidence and the contradiction and the the fact checking. You know, never mind that. You just you've got your message out there, job done, and that. Well, I mean, it is. I don't think it ever was thus. You know, I think it that has been that's a phenomenon of social media yep. and and an age where messages can be twisted so subtly but so profoundly that people do fall into a camp that under any kind of as we were saying earlier you know any kind of rational interrogation you would say you're you're doing something against your own interests well something's got to have taken them to that point yes so you know at the heart of it there's either cynical manipulative self-interested enterprise at work 
or people are just bumbling through and, and getting stuff hopelessly wrong. <laughs> Either way, it's not good. It's not. It's no way to run a country, Mrs. Jones. You know. That's right. I mean, it is a I, look. What this is never going to happen, is it? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know under what me- possible mechanism this would ever come in. How it would work? Would it be? You know, would you be shown into the boardroom and then Lord Sugar would jail you for six months <laughs> or, or whatever? I, I, who? What? Which MP would actually vote for vote for this? <laughs> yes, yes. Which tur- which which Turkey? Which yes. Westminster Turkey would vote for this kind of Christmas? The idea of. We, there's a, a, a very good reader's letter in, in, in this week's uh, Fine New European uh, which says that if this came in that, that the future cabinet meetings could be conducted by video link from Belmarsh which, yes. which I did think was <laughs> Belmarsh isn't big enough <laughs> so it is kind of irresistible it isn't going to happen before I let you go when we talk about the we talk about the reader's letter there you've talked about Alistair Campbell why else should people buy um, this great issue of the new European. Well, I, th- I think for the someone very kindly said our covers are becoming like works of art, and I can't claim credit for uh, for that, or not total credit anyway. <laughs> but uh, well, there are now a number of very very talented people that work on our our covers, and I, th- I do think we're we're getting into our stride and hitting hitting home. And and the covers very good this week. We've got the sort of the chicken posed up like it's lying on a beach, and the great headline are you bleach body ready and and that i think pippa musgrave inside the paper is getting into the heart of the matter around chlorinated chickens that it's not this distraction about whether the chicken's clean enough to eat or not it's the what 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 these new deregulations uh, the impact they'll have on our economy you know and you've got to remember that all of the regulations in the European Union, we've been at the heart of trying to establish them. You know, we mm. we made these rules, you know, because we value, in this case, you know, we value animal welfare. We value uh, the principle that we should keep animals clean and healthy throughout their lives rather than sorting out a, a messy animal at the end of its life. I think they're good. They suit me. Uh, but more importantly, the American chicken is the reason they do that is it's cheaper to produce. Uh, they keep their chickens alive six weeks because they uh, force feed them, yep. they pump them full of stuff, and then they they keep them in in quite horrendous conditions. Um, uh, someone said, you know, but when an American chicken goes into the oven, that's the biggest space it's ever had in its life. You know, Man so, alive! So so so, I think this idea that um, that we are. You know, rejecting these insidious uh, European Union regulations that are crushing the United Kingdom's potential for growth. The reverse is true. We put these things in place, and now in unpicking them, we are jeopardising the the welfare of the farmers, not just the animals. You know, the farmers yep. who are producing these chickens to our standards. Well, they'll now come under threat from American chickens, which are cheaper to produce, and it'll undermine their businesses. So that's tragic. It is tragic, and look, the you know Michael Gove popped up, didn't he, to attempt to put this back in its box last week and said that you know you won't be eating chlorinated chicken, you don't need to worry about that. Do we really think that we are going to be able to do trade deals with Australia, America, New Zealand, places like that, and say we will trade freely with you? Oh, but we we're not having that. Yeah. They will just say you will take this, yeah. or we won't do a deal with so you. So this is the great lie about taking back control. It's like there's no control anyway. Control is a myth. You know, in a globalised society, you have to 
share control. Right. You seed control out. That's how it works. Yeah, That's yeah. how trade deals work. But um, anyway, you asked a great question about why else should people buy the New European. And for, uh, if people are only listening to the podcast and never read the paper, you may be under the impression that all we do is bore people senseless each week about Brexit. But there's that is more. That is some of what we do. <laughs> we, do we, we, we never let a week pass without <laughs> doing that. However... Half of the paper is, as as readers will know, is a great celebration of culture and art. And there's the most fabulous, I think it's five pages, isn't it, on my favourite artist, Henri Matisse, uh, a great celebration of a new exhibition that is celebrating his work and art. Uh, there's also a great thing about music in there. I think, um, was it 1987 we've done this week? We have done that yeah. in 87 uh, this so week. So we, each week we analyse the cultural importance of, of, of a year based around, focused around the music that was coming out. It's a fascinating feature and uh, that's terrific this week. And there's also a great thing about film noir, including my, could be my all-time favourite movie if you've never seen it, black and white uh, French movie from the 50s called... Uh, Les Diaboliques, ah, yeah. Devils, and if you've never seen it, it's fabulous and it's got the best twist ending you've ever seen in cinema history. It is a that is a great film. There's some great writing in it this week. There's a really beautiful piece about Jean Moreau and uh, Sam Shepard who which both left us this week. Uh, that's by Bonnie Greer. Film noir piece I love. There's a beautiful piece by uh, by Nigel Warburton, the philosopher. Uh, uh, it really is. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a great thing, and I've, I've got to say that once again, Matt's mentioned the front page, but our designers continue to knock this out of the park. If you like print uh, and you've not seen the New European before, I guarantee you will enjoy the design and the feel of the New European. Thank you very much, Matt Kelly. We will be back with the Brexiteer of the week. Stay angry, fight Brexit, subscribe to the New European. Your first 13 issues of The New European are only £13 when you join us and become a subscriber. Order by telephone by calling 01858 438840 and quoting Podcast One, or order online at our website, www.neweuropean.co.uk. Stay angry. Fight Brexit. Subscribe to The New European. Brexiteer of the week now, and an honourable mention goes first to the caretaker captain of the Titanic, that is Steve Crowther, the interim leader of UKIP. He sent the party's remaining members a begging letter this week. It was headlined, I appeal to you. Underneath that, because it's the kind of jokey guy he is, Steve had written, well, maybe I don't, but the good news is that you won't have to put up with me for very much longer. Aha! Uh, The uh, letter went on to say that UKIP had been pasted uh, in two elections understandably we're strapped for cash can you spare us a tenner or two uh, Steve signed off with an absolutely cringeworthy yours brexitively Steve Crowther it just seems though that UKIP members don't have that much to be brexitive about these days uh, also in the running is uh, James Sir James Dyson the uh, vacuum disruptor uh, Sir James um, you might remember was one of the few businessmen who backed Brexit before the referendum along with Tim Martin from Weatherspoons uh, he has now warned the government not to cut subsidies for farmers once Britain leaves the EU now perhaps not coincidentally Sir James Dyson owns the biggest total farming estate in the UK and last year it turns out that he got 1.6 million pounds from the basic payment scheme that's part of the EU's common agricultural 
policy. Uh, of course, there is one easy way that we could uh, we could stop James Sir James worrying about British farmers facing a competitive disadvantage with EU farmers, and that would be to stay in the EU. But the winner this week, and we've already touched on this before, are those YouGov leavers. We're repeatedly told, aren't we, not to view those people who voted leave as selfish or silly or obsessive. Yet how can you explain this poll of over 2,000 leavers, which reveals that that 61% of them would consider significant damage to the British economy to be a price worth paying for taking Britain out of the EU? It's, it's just incredible. 61% of Remain voters, by contrast, said it wouldn't be worth losing their job or the job of a family member just to stay in the EU. Is it just that we're nicer people than them? And finally today, I'm joined by Jerry Scott to discuss the reader topic of the week, um, with the White House beginning to resemble the set of Game of Thrones and with Celebrity Big Brother uh, back on the screens. If you like that kind of thing, we thought we would ask our readers who they thought the first person to be voted out of the Cabinet House would be. Uh, would it be uh, Would it be David Davis? Would it be Liam Fox? Would it be Boris Johnson, the three Brexiteers? Perhaps it is going to be go the other way and it's going to be Philip Hammond, who is a far less Brexiteer, as we know, Amber Rudd. And then, of course, could it be the boss lady herself, Theresa May? Jerry, what did the, uh, what did the readers say? The readers had quite a, uh, quite strong views. Not surprising, is it? They, <laughs> they usually do. Um, we've had one in from Leo Howard, who uh, said he thinks it'll be Fox by a clear margin. Um, he said that's who he'd like to leave first because he's the only authentic Brexit hardliner um, and a hypocritical hyperliberal with contacts to questionable leaderships. There you go. <laughs> there was quite there were quite a few for Fox, weren't there? There were. There were a good few. Um, Rob, uh, Rod Webb also said that he'd like it to be uh, Liam Fox, but he thinks actually it'll be Philip Hall- uh, Hammond instead. Yes, he seems to be uh, swimming slightly against the right wing tide is probably the most capable of forming a viable opposition to May, apparently. Yeah, and Tamara Rebellino, which is, I would like to be called Tamara Rebellino, frankly, that's a great, fantastic name. She also said Hammond, uh, only because Hammond can, is capable of leading a new government, otherwise you could say Fox Davis Johnson Rudd. Uh, on Twitter, Peter Hedges said, doesn't the first one to leave usually have the best solo career? <laughs> Which I thought was the, that was the, one of the greatest comments of the week. Uh, and true. Yeah, very, very true. It is true, isn't it? Um, Casper David Reed, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, I hope so. Apologies, Casper, if it isn't. Uh, he said, for inept performance, Johnson, for being thick, Davis, for total incompetence, Fox. They can't sack Rudd as they need to keep another woman in the cabinet. So it has to be Hammond that goes first. He's the only one trying to limit the damage to the economy. Um, and then we've also got uh, Lionel Sachs, which uh, he says that it's really unfair to leave these decisions to politics and backroom brawling. And what we need to do is convert some part of the Olympic arena to a proper circus and the ministers to participate in proper gladiator style fights to the death. That'd yeah, it, it? it would. Yeah, yeah. You, you, not, you won't be surprised to hear that there were quite a few of these. Uh, Ambrose Gillum uh, was one of them. Uh, get rid of them all. Uh, I would like to see them all on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, preferably in a crocodile-infested swamp. 
<laughs> Am I having a cruel fantasy, says Ambrose? Yes, frankly, you are. <laughs> and uh, Rick Hall on Twitter would like to see all of them with heads on spikes. Yes, which sort of returns us to the, 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 the Game of Thrones thing uh, from the start. And... Uh, uh, who do you who do you think, Jerry? Who do you think is, is is the most likely to go first? Well, if we're looking at Big Brother style eliminations, I'd love to see them all do the challenges live on TV. To be honest, um, oh, I think it's going to be Hammond. I really do. Um, I think when Theresa May was away on holiday, you saw a bit of uh, you know the um, well, the cat's away mm. type situation. Um, with you know saying that we'll have the same relationship with Brussels or a similar one for three years after 2019, said he'd convince his cabinet colleagues he hadn't. Liam Foxon said he hadn't. Boris Johnson criticised the plans. Um, I just think he's not on the on the cabinet line as such. No. I think that'll mean he's the first one to go. No, he isn't. But if he was to be forced out, then you know would that mean that other people would leave the cabinet? Would people who are uh, not headbangers leave the cabinet. Has she got to leave him there? I, I, I don't know. I've got a lot. I, I was. I read all of these, uh, all of the, the the comments on Twitter and on Facebook that people said. In a lot of people nominated uh, Hammond. I think Hammond and Fox were the were the, the sort of the main two. I can see Fox going, as we said ages ago. He hasn't really got a job, has he, until we leave. <laughs> you know, he can't actually do anything a, 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 apart from what he likes to do, which is swan around the world having nice dinners. But he can't actually do anything until uh, March of 2019, if we actually do go uh, in March 2019. Um, I think that is on the table still. Um, but Hammond, yeah, I, I mean, he is the most likely candidate to be forced out. Who would replace it? It would have to be another person with sympathy uh, to the Remain cause, I would have thought. Uh, and he also seems quite... Um, I mean, he seems like a, you know, a reasonably able uh, person to me, Hammond. It's really, I thought it was really interesting what happened this week. Um, as you say, there was a bit of the, the cats away. There was obviously been some briefings that the Cabinet were united on this idea of a transitional period with free movement. Uh, Fox then threw his toys out of the the, the pram on one of his um, on one of his jaunts. Uh, Boris Johnson had made it known that he hadn't been consulted about it. But yet, yeah, when Theresa May ostensibly slapped down Hammond uh, and said that free movement would end in March 2019, I can't remember the exact words that, that that were used in that statement. But she sort of held the door open for a new arrangement, and it was pretty much what she'd been saying um, all along. Who would you really love to see just be unceremoniously fired? Oh, Boris. Yeah. I'd love to see him go. I'd love to see him go. I mean, Vince Cable said, wasn't it, didn't he, that he um, had heard rumours that Boris was going to resign and Boris uh, soon said, you know, no, I'm not. Um, and that Vince was making stuff up. Um, but, well, he would know, wouldn't he, about making stuff up? Well, he would know about stuff making up. stuff up, exactly. Um, but oh, I, I just, I'd love to see the indignity on his face. Yes. Um, and but no, I, I, I don't think he'll go. I don't think Liam Fox will go. I, I do think if anyone, it'll be Philip Hammond. Well, on that slightly sad note, if it can be 
uh, sad that anybody leaves the, the, the cabinet at this stage. Uh, we will end this week's New European podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I would urge you once again to buy the fine newspaper, The New European, which is available in all good news agents. If you want to subscribe to The New European, uh, then go to our website. That's theneweuropean.co.uk. Uh, alternatively, you can go to subsave.co.uk slash t3. That is subsave.co.uk slash t3. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next week. Uh-huh.